and not by government. And 11 years later, when the representatives of the 13 colonies met to draw up a constitution in a convention held at Philadelphia, they came with factional and provincial ideas. It was the intention of every one of the representatives of those colonies to uphold his own colony even at the expense of the privileges and rights of the others. Day after day in that upstairs room over the stable, they argued and debated until sometimes it seems that the nation that had been won by the blood of the patriots on the field would be lost by the bitter debate in the convention. It was on that occasion that Benjamin Franklin, in all the dignity of his 81 years, stood up, leaning on the top of his cane, and addressed the chairman with these words. Mr. Chairman, I have lived a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proof of this I see, that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it possible, sir, that an empire can arise without his aid? I therefore move, sir, that divine aid be implored upon our deliberations from this day forth. And history attests that from that time on, there was a different atmosphere in which they worked. And out of that atmosphere, they forged one of the greatest uninspired documents ever conceived by the mind of man and penned by human quill, the Constitution of the United States of America. How wonderful it is that we who live here in this land live under that Constitution all these years later. This is a special time of year in our country when we remember our freedom. We celebrate what it means to enjoy liberty. If there is a traditional hallmark of our nation, it would be our love of freedom. America has become a term that is somewhat synonymous with being free. This is one of our highest held. It is our most praised and prized of blessings as a country. We thank God for the freedom that we have. The freedom that we enjoy in our day, though, is being terribly, terribly abused. We are in danger of losing the very freedom that we celebrate, because abuse of freedom can so rapidly lead to the death of freedom. We have in our country at this time high crime with sometimes very little punishment. We have all kinds of rights for criminals. We have severe drug and alcohol abuse. We have media drowning us in a cesspool of filth. We have homosexuality glorified. We have many, many people flaunting polluted relationships, murdering unborn children, all in the name of freedom. There are some societies where many of these things do not happen. They have very little freedom, but at least you can walk the street in the middle of the night in a big city and not fear that someone is going to attack you, unless it would be the police. In the name of freedom, an awful lot of things go on in our country that, if continued, will lead, as they always have led historically, to the loss of freedom. It is characteristic of man in a free society that he will abuse that freedom because of sin. 
Freedom is always qualified by forces both inside and outside of man. It is in the very nature of freedom that it can be abused to the point where it is lost. And what is true in the political and sociological arena in the world is also true in the spiritual realm. We understand freedom in this nation because we live here. You and I understand spiritual freedom because it is a biblical truth. Just as our political freedom can be abused, so our spiritual freedom can be abused. I know of churches where there seems to be very little concern for holiness of life. There are people who think that because they're free in Christ, they can leave their spouse and go shack up with another person, and everything is going to be fine. There is a diminishing sense of alarm, a diminishing shock level in terms of our reaction to sin as a people. When Christian freedom is being abused, we need to touch base with what the Apostle Paul said about the control factors on that liberty. Galatia was a region in which there were many cities. My assignment tonight, Stand Fast in the Liberty, has to do with something that Paul wrote to churches that he started in that area. In Galatia, Paul had preached the gospel of freedom from the law and freedom from sin. It was a message of tremendous liberation to people who had been shackled by paganism for so long. There were some Jews who felt very threatened by what Paul had done there. They came into Galatia behind Paul, and everywhere they went, they told Paul's converts that they had to keep the law of Moses. Keep the Ten Commandments, keep the ceremonies, keep the rituals. Be circumcised, follow every tradition, or you will be displeasing to your Heavenly Father. And Paul writes about this issue in the Galatian letter. He says that we are free in Christ and are not to be brought back under the yoke of bondage. In chapter 4, he makes an analogy between Sarah, who was free, and Hagar, who was a bondwoman. And he says, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman. We are children of the free. And then in chapter 5, that very familiar verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made you free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And then in verse 13, Brethren, you've been called unto liberty. I meet people on a fairly regular basis who do not believe that the law of Moses, including the Ten Commandments, has been removed by God. Many, many people still believe that we're under that law or some form of that law. So I'd like to make it clear what the New Testament says on that subject. The law that Paul is analyzing in the Galatian letter was added because of transgressions until the promised seed should come. It was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. It was the law from Mount Sinai. Paul says so. Of this law, Paul said, that Christ came to redeem them that were under the law. He said Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He said if righteousness came by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. This theme is struck throughout so many letters in the New Testament. The law described in the Roman letter 
is the one which said, Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not covet. Of this law, Paul wrote, You are become dead to the law by the body of Christ. We are delivered from the law, he says. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. In the second Corinthian letter, the law under discussion was written in tables of stone. It was given at the time when Moses' face shone. The law in second Corinthians is actually called Moses. Of this law, it is stated that it was to be done away, that it is done away, that it is abolished. The law discussed in the Ephesian letter is the one that created the commonwealth of Israel. It is the law that contained the covenants of promise. It is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. It applied to those circumcised in the flesh. Concerning this law, it is said in the Ephesian letter that Christ broke down the middle wall of partition that was between Jew and Gentile. It is said that he abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances. In the Colossian letter, the law was identified as the handwriting of ordinances containing prescriptions and proscriptions for meat, drink, holy days, new moons, Sabbath days. It says that Christ blotted out the handwriting of ordinances and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. It says the law was a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. The Hebrew letter shows the overwhelming superiority of the new over the old. The law spoken of in the Hebrew letter is the word spoken by angels. It was the testament Moses sprinkled with blood at Mount Sinai. It is the one that contained the Levitical priesthood. It is the one having ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. That law is spoken of as being removed. There is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before. The priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity also a change of the law. He hath made the first old ready to vanish away. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. And you are not come to the mount which might be touched, which burneth with fire. But you are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God. This is just a little of the overwhelming evidence in the New Testament that the law of Moses, including the Ten Commandments, has been abrogated by God. And we are free in Christ, free from the law. How do we enjoy our Christian freedom without abusing it? How do we contain our Christian freedom so that we don't run amok in terms of unrighteousness? Freedom that is out of control is going to be lost. It's amazing how much tolerance of sin and for sin there is in the church itself. Paul says, Brethren, you've been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. He went so far in 1 Corinthians 1.9 as to say that I buffet my body to bring it into subjection, lest after I have preached to others I myself should be a castaway. Your fleshly body 
is the unredeemed part of you. Romans chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8 deal with this in a substantial way. The truest, deepest part of you is redeemed, and that is your spirit. He that is joined to the Lord is one spirit, 1 Corinthians 6, 17. He has already redeemed our spirit. He has not yet redeemed our body. We're waiting for the adoption, that is, the redemption of our body. Now is our salvation nearer than when we believed, but we're still waiting for the redemption of our body. The Lord is getting ready for the time when he will change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. This will happen at what Paul calls the glorious liberation of the children of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, says the Apostle John. Until that happens, we have this problem of flesh versus spirit. The reign of sin is broken, but there is a residual effect with the flesh trying, trying, trying to make claims upon you. The flesh wants to sin based on the promised forgiveness, but that's an abuse of your freedom. Paul says you're not only free from the law, but you are free from the flesh. He goes so far as to say that in the sense that he's using the expression, you are not even in the flesh. This is in the 8th chapter of the Roman letter where I should read a few verses. I'll start in verse 8, Romans 8, 8. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God, but ye are not in the flesh. Now he's writing to the church at Rome. He's writing to brethren like you and me who had a fleshly body and had a spirit inside of that fleshly body. But in the sense in which he's using this expression, he says, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if you lived after the flesh, you shall die. But if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. What does he mean, you're not in the flesh? How is he using this expression? Succinctly, we can put it this way. When you are in the flesh, your body tells you what to do. When you're freed from the flesh... You tell your body what to do. That's as simply as I think I can think of a way to put it. When you are in the flesh, your body tells you what to do. When you're free from the flesh, you tell your body what to do. I think we all know the conflict that we face here. Paul says you're free from the flesh. You don't owe the flesh one thing. If you're in Christ Jesus, the flesh has no claim on you. The flesh cannot say to you, you do this or I'm going to make you miserable. Not if the Lord has freed you from that. You are set free from the whole sorry, sordid, messed up mix. Peter says some of the false teachers allure 
through the lusts of the flesh. Jezebel seems to have been such a woman, as recorded in the letter to Thyatira, alluring through the lusts of the flesh, through much wantonness. They promise liberty, says Peter, but they themselves are the slaves of corruption. They promise you freedom, but it leads to corruption. Freedom in Christ is controlled by the fact that it does not allow us to indulge the flesh. Our freedom in Christ is not freedom to do everything that we want to do. Christian freedom is the freedom from sin, not the freedom to sin. The supreme ambition of our Lord was to please His Father, not my will, but thine be done. Paul says in Romans 15.3 that the essence of Christian freedom is to be concerned about others. He says that even Christ, even Christ, did not please Himself. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. And not to please ourselves. That's the only verse in the New Testament that talks about pleasing ourselves. The only verse in the New Testament that talks about pleasing ourselves says not to. The Christian soldier, 2 Timothy 2 verse 4, does what he does to please the one who called him to be a soldier. There is an obligation to hold the flesh in check. Now the church has always had within it and has always faced from without those who hold an antinomian no-law view, which is used eventually, always used sooner or later, as a justification to do evil. There are many people, perhaps an increasing number, definitely an alarming number of people in the church who believe that they are free to do what is clearly forbidden by the Word of God. The first parameter for controlling our freedom is self-control. Freedom in Christ is freedom to do right. It's not freedom to injure others. Our society now thinks that freedom in America is freedom to be a pervert. Our society is very concerned to give rights to perverts. Our society feels now that I'm free to do whatever I want to do. I'm a little god. I'm the little monarch of my own world. And I don't care how it affects you. Paul says in that 13th verse of Galatians 5, Use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. The term translated occasion was a military expression, meaning a base of operations. Don't use your freedom in Christ as a base of operations from which your flesh is activated. But, by love, serve one another. Down in verse 15 says, If you bite and devour one another. By the way, the word bite is used most often in the Bible of snake bites. And the word devour means to gulp down totally. If you bite people like a poisonous snake, and if you devour one another, take heed that you're not consumed yourself. So use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve. Your liberty is to serve people, not to devour people. 
The attitude of a godly Christian liberty is not, I can be involved in anything I want. I can take any attitude I want to toward the gray areas of life. Christian liberty is not self-centered. We are not given liberty to hurt somebody who is weak. The word love in verse 13 fairly obviously is agape. By love, serve one another. And the most characteristic element of agape, as you know, is self-sacrifice. The word serve in verse 13, by love, serve one another, is from doulos, which means a bond slave. Your freedom is a kind of slavery. That's paradoxical, but absolutely true. Our freedom involves a slavery to the needs of other people. The essence of real Christian freedom is that paradox of freedom and slavery. I am free to do right. It is a confined freedom. It is a controlled freedom, like a lovely river flowing within its banks. When that river leaves the confinement and the control of its banks, it has a tremendous power to destroy. There are lots of Romans 14 situations in life. There are strong and there are weak. Say there's a Gentile back in the first century and he's living in Rome. All his life he's been involved in paganism, born and bred in it, never known anything else. All his life he's been involved in idolatry. He's gone to the pagan temples. He's offered his sacrifices to idols. He's been to the drunken feasts and orgies and participated in them. He's eaten the meat offered to idols. And eating that meat in his mind means fellowship with the idols. That's a part of his whole culture. That's been his life. And then he comes to faith in Christ when he hears, hears the message of liberation from the lips, perhaps, of an apostle. He's baptized into Christ and his life is transformed. He doesn't want to touch that stuff in paganism. He doesn't want to go anywhere near it. Everything about it is repulsive to him. You invite him over for dinner and you say, I hope you like roast. And his first thought is, where'd you get it? Oh, I bought it at a butcher shop down in the marketplace. Oh yeah? Which butcher shop? Oh, the one down on the far end, you know the one. He says, they sell meat offered to idols in that butcher shop. I'm not eating it. And you say, well, what's an idol? An idol is nothing. Just eat it and enjoy it. You're free. He says, I just can't do it. So you conjole him. You get him to finally sit down with you and have the feast. And he is perhaps thrown a stumbling block by that. Because he sees you doing something and he himself is going back to doing something that to him is integrally connected to pagan idolatry. If you hadn't done that, he might in time have grown to understand. But at this early point in his Christian career, he can't handle it. It smacks to him of everything in his past which he hates and from which he has been redeemed. Say there's a Jew who has just come to Christ and you invite him over and say, we're having ham. He's a new Christian. And he hesitates. And you say to him, look, every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused. There aren't any more unclean foods. And you get out the 10th chapter of Acts and you read that to him. And he says, I'm sorry, I'd still gag on ham. I was raised that way, I just can't handle it. If you go ahead and conjole him to do that anyway and violate his conscience, you're setting him back. Paul says, don't force these things. 
on these kinds of issues. Don't get into disputation to settle the doubtful points of the week. Just receive him in the faith and let him grow. Don't make it hard on him. Don't judge him. Smooth the way for him as much as you possibly can. Give him space to grow. The Lord is able to make him stand, says the apostle. When I was a little kid, Sunday was held to be a special day by the society as a whole, at least where I lived. Virtually every place of business, every store was closed on Sunday. The idea was that Sunday was a sort of a Christian Sabbath. Now, of course, the Bible does not teach this, but this was the idea in the civilization. It was an idea that had trickled down through the denominational world and was commonly believed. Many people in the church were affected by this. I remember grave and serious debate about whether the boys of our congregation should be allowed to play an informal football game together on Sunday afternoon. A lot of people seemed to believe in those days that there were only two things that you should do on the Lord's Day. One of them was go to church and the other one was eat. We didn't have any restrictions against eating. We had big dinners because that was one of the few things that was allowed to do. There are people who still view the Lord's Day in that way. That Sunday is a sort of a modern day Sabbath. My own grandfather would not go hunting with us on Sunday. He would not write a check on Sunday. He would never work on Sunday except when it was absolutely necessary, something absolutely had to be done, and he arranged his life so that that happened as infrequently as possible. On the other hand, there are many people, especially now in the churches, who do not believe that Sunday is a Christian Sabbath because they don't find that in the New Testament. Don't flaunt your liberty to the point of offense and learn to set liberty aside for the sake of other people's growth and out of love for them. And we can get along fine. The apostle says it is good neither to eat meat nor to drink wine or anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or made weak. Don't destroy your brother for the sake of food. To be free in Christ does not mean that I'm free from you. We're in Christ together, and to that extent, we're stuck with one another. Our freedom is controlled, and our freedom is confined. It's not freedom to indulge the flesh. It's not freedom to injure other people. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification, for even Christ pleased not himself. Stand fast in the liberty that loves others and seeks their good. Christian freedom is not the license to ignore the commandments of God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Treat him like you'd want to be treated. Be saturated with the word of God so that the word of God dwells in you richly. The word of God infiltrating your heart will tend to control your behavior. The exercise of our liberty is controlled by these things. Purity of life, loving other people, and obeying God's word. Let us enjoy our liberty and live within its limits. Every freedom ever given has an accompanying responsibility. And in the long run, you can't have the freedom without accepting 
that responsibility. I remember during the first camp out, one day I took a little group of junior high kids over the hill and we found a quiet spot by ourselves and we talked about the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia and talked about the words that were written on that Liberty Bell and how they came from the Bible in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 10. Proclaim liberty throughout the land. And this is what Isaiah predicted that the Lord was going to do when he came. Jesus read about it in the synagogue of Nazareth to proclaim liberty to the captives. And he's been here and done exactly that. We owe a deep debt of gratitude to our Heavenly Father for that. Abraham Lincoln was the president who said, I tremble for my country when I remember that God is just. Somebody said that if God does not condemn America, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. We face stringent times. I told the people in the high school and college class and the junior high class that some of the things they may see in their generation coming toward the church would have been almost inconceivable to those of us who are older a few years ago. But we can see them coming now. So they need to stand and having done all stand and be strong. We need to help them learn to be that before we pass away and leave them with the church. Abraham Lincoln, during his 49 months in the presidency, issued nine separate calls to public penitence, fasting, prayer, and thanksgiving. He was actually the first president to establish a federal thanksgiving. Though it had its roots in colonial America, it was not regularized until it was done so by Lincoln in the autumn of 1863. It was the day of Thursday was selected for that because it was in the middle of a week and it was not identified with any existing worshiping group. Friday was identified with Muslims. Saturday was identified with Jews. Sunday was identified with Christians. Thursday wasn't identified with anybody. So it was hoped that it could belong equally to all the people of America regardless of their religious affiliation. And the first one was a national fast day. Here's what Lincoln had to say. It is fit and becoming in all people at all times to acknowledge and revere the supreme government of God, to bow in humble submission to his chastisements, to confess and deplore their sins and transgressions in the full conviction that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and to pray with all fervency and contrition for the pardon of their past offenses and for a blessing upon their present and prospective action. Quite a president he was. In 1941, an act of Congress set the fourth Thursday in November as our national annual Thanksgiving Day. And I'm glad that we have that. We need these reminders about our freedom in Christ and the utter responsibilities that we have in handling it. We're going to once again extend the Lord's invitation. I appreciated Fred's words a few moments ago. This morning I said that the invitation then might be your last opportunity, and that was true. It's also true that this one might be your last opportunity. This is such a serious thing that everything else pales in comparison to it. This is the number one thing that matters. 
in your life right at this moment. Are you in Christ or are you not? I believe that if you are accountable to God, you surely know the answer to that question. We don't want to bring the spotlight of focus upon you in an embarrassing way. But if within yourself you fully understand everything that Jesus said about himself, everything that Jesus said about you, that there's going to be a great day of judgment coming, and that God's love has made it possible for you to escape from that judgment, if you understand this, what is hampering you? What is keeping you from coming to Jesus Christ in simple trusting faith? What is it going to take to move you in the direction of God? We implore you to think of this with the urgency that it deserves. If we can help you in any way this evening, any of you, please come to the front as we stand and sing the number that has been selected. Number 539.